you have a Bible with you this morning, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, as we finish the Beatitudes, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would um, come and as we talk about peacemaking, um, that you would put it on our hearts, uh, that we would be peacemakers, that you would put it on our hearts, maybe even those with whom we need to make peace. I pray uh, for myself that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been here at all for the past few weeks, you know that we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and the title of the the series that we're doing is Living Your Best Life, right? And the reason we're doing that is because all the, the, the things that Jesus is saying here, remember when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, these things are called macarisms, and they're, they're not blessings in the sense of like covenantal God just blessing you. They have more to do with wisdom. In other words, they have to do with how you live your best life. And so Jesus has basically healed a bunch of people, and he's called his disciples, and he's saying, here's what it looks like to live your best life in the kingdom of God. And so this morning, we're talking about the last Beatitudes of peacemaking and persecution. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to ask you a question and then we're going to walk through some things. So basically, the question I want to start with today, I'm going to show you a picture in just one minute. And when I show you this picture, it's going to be two people, and I want you to decide in your mind who among these two people is living his or her best life. Okay? You ready? For those of you on, <laughs> listening online, <laughs> it's a picture of Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi. This week, I mean, so this week was pretty serendipitous in that I'm preaching on peacemaking, and it was the craziest week in politics I think I've ever seen. It was so crazy, I had to write some things down. I don't use notes, but for this, I had to. That basically, if you think about it, the, the relationship between these two people, right, the President of the United States and the Speaker of Congress, so let's just pick up with the fact that she decided that she was going to, to move to impeach him without a vote of Congress. If that was me, I would be upset by that. Apparently he was, <laughs> okay? And so we come to the State of the Union address and it just gets crazier. So it's the State of the Union is given the day before he is more than likely going to be acquitted. And so he gets to the State of the Union and so is Nancy Pelosi gonna make peace with him? No. What she does instead, instead of saying what she typically says, she's supposed to have said, uh, my wife always gets nervous when I do this because I never practice. It's what's in my head. Members of Congress, <laughs> right? She, she's supposed to say, I have the high privilege and distinct honor of presenting to you the President of the United States. Instead, she just said, 
members of Congress, the President of the United States. Okay, so he gets up there. Is he going to be a peacemaker? How's he going to respond to that? She reaches out to shake his hand, and he snubs her as if he were in junior high. He doesn't shake Could it get worse than that? Of course it could. How is she going to respond to that? What she's going to do is wait till the whole country is looking after he gives a very sort of triumphant speech, whether you agreed with what he said or not. And she's, you could see in pictures, she's been like practicing. She's going to rip that speech up. No. And as soon as the speech ends, he thinks everything's fine and right behind his back, zip, zap, zip, zap, zip, she's ripping it up. That's not very peacemaker-ish. So what happens the next morning? Could it get any better? Of course it could. The next morning, it's a national prayer breakfast. And you know how the Speaker of the House says all the time, I pray for the President. I really pray for him all the time. Well, he says to the national prayer breakfast, not anything like, isn't it great that we can trust Jesus and we have all these things? He says, (laughs) I'm sorry, I don't like people who use their faith as justification for doing what they know is wrong. I think he meant Mitt Romney there. Nor do I like people who say, I pray for you when they know that's not so. So he's like ditching her. She's five feet away. Now, she's going to certainly respond by making peace, correct? No. What is she? Then she goes on and says, I think the president was sedated during the State of the Union. Right? And on and on and on. It goes crazy. So the question is, who is living their best life, Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi? According to Jesus, neither of them, by a long shot. I don't mean that to be a political statement. I mean that, if anything, to be a prophetic statement. What they do, Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi often refer to the fact of, to their Christian faith. Her longtime Catholic faith, his relatively newfound faith. But nonetheless... They talk about the fact that they are Christians, and yet, if they are Christians, and Jesus says the way you live your best life is like this, they're missing the boat. We can call that, I think, a fail. And not just a fail, but a huge, fat, public fail. That the culmination of all of the Sermon on the Mount, the culmination of what it means to live your best life, we're going to find out this morning, is peacemaking. Not peacekeeping, We'll talk about that later. It's peacemaking. It's proactively being a person who goes out of his or her way to make peace, especially with your enemies, particularly with your enemies. Who, because if, if someone's your friend, you typically don't have to make peace with them. And so we remember we've looked at the, the Sermon on the Mount. We've looked at the Beatitudes up to this point, starting with poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then we get to the point of peacemaking. You know, and last week it was interesting because as, as Samuel was preaching, do you remember how Samuel opened his sermon? Those of you who are taking notes might. He asked a question too. He, he says, what, he preached on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he says, what is it that you hunger and thirst for most in your life? And without even thinking, I wrote to be free of conflict. I hunger for that. I long for that. And then within a minute, I looked down and thought, next week I have to preach on peacemaking, which assumes conflict. 
It assumes hostility. It assumes all these things. So, so I might long for, for a life that's free of conflict. It seems like I'm going to have to play a part in making sure that happens. And so we're going to look at three things this morning as we consider peacemaking and this beatitude. Um, basically, the first thing we're going to consider, that's a break for your eyes, isn't it? Um, the first thing we're going to consider is the peace of Jesus. The second thing we're going to consider is our calling to be peacemakers. And the third thing we're going to look at is the consequences of peacemaking, right? Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're more difficult. So when we consider, let's look at first the, the peacemaking or the peace of Jesus. Let me read it to you one more time. It says in verse uh, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. So a couple things to remember. This, by the way, is the only place in the whole Bible where this, this word peacemaking is used. And typically, when the Bible talks about peace, it also doesn't, is not talking about relief from anxiety. When the Bible talks about making peace or God has made peace, something like that, it's not relief from anxiety, but rather it's relief from hostility. It's relief from conflict or or. or being hostile, and so basically what hostility, when Jesus comes, and we call Jesus a peacemaker, the, the hostility that he came to resolve or to reconcile was the hostility between us and God, or the hostility between humanity and God. And what, what do I mean by that? Let me read to you um, Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Romans 8, 7 says this, Paul's talking about the, the living life in the flesh and that kind of thing. Verse 7, he says, For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, nor does it submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay? Let me look at Romans 5 real quickly. A couple verses there. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? In other words, by nature and by choice, you and I are hostile and alienated from God. It's just a fact. The Bible makes, makes that abundantly clear. It's, a, it's sort of like, and if you think about how crazy that is, it's sort of like an ant shaking his fist at an elephant. Or it's sort of like my neighbor's dog, right? My neighbor has a dog that probably weighs six pounds, seven pounds. His name is Wesley. He's a little silky terrier, and I hate him. <laughs> it's one thing for a dog to bark when you walk into his yard. It's another thing altogether for a dog to bark when you walk in your own yard. That dog sees me walking past my front window, and he comes running across the street. <laughs> And I just want to punt him like a football. He has no idea who he's dealing with here. And sometimes I've thought to myself, well, if I could just become a cute little yappy dog and go out and tell Wesley, we, don't, we can be friends. In fact, if you'd like play your cards right, I'll give you snacks every now and then. If you play your cards, I'll even give you a couple scratches behind your ears. If, if I could just become a little dog and tell him that, maybe that would resolve the hostility. Or maybe not. Maybe he would kill me. That sounds pretty grim, doesn't it? But let me tell you this. If you doubt whether or not you and I and humanity is hostile to God by our very nature, 
the one time in history when he made himself vulnerable to us, we killed him. The one time God manifested himself in the flesh, the one time God said, here I am, in the person of Jesus, we crucified him and killed him. That's pretty hostile. Now, the good news of the gospel is is basically this. Because of the gospel, the war is over. Because we killed the, the son of glory, but it isn't because we took his life, it's because he gave his life up. He gave his life up for us. Let me read to you Colossians 1, verse 21, says this. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, Jesus came and in his body of flesh, through his crucifixion, through his death, he reconciled us to God. The justice you and I deserve was, was born by Jesus. The wrath of God was born by Jesus. The curse of the law was born by Jesus. And get this, the, even the emotional backlash. And, and what I mean by that, remember Jesus on the cross, he's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we tend to make it very sort of like, like, like as if it were math. Right, so God had to do it, and Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so God just very mathematically and unemotionally turned his back for a minute to to get the job done, and then turned back. Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God has forsaken him. God is angry at sin, and he is pouring it all out on Jesus. I imagine that is a little emotional. And even the emotional backlash was poured out upon Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is because he bore the curse of the law and the emotional backlash, all of that, you and I now bear the smile of God. We, he looks upon us with a smiling countenance, not a frowning countenance. He looks at us not as enemies and not as people who are at war with him, but as sons and daughters. That's good news, isn't it? I mean, and the, the, but to take it a step further, that since we have been reconciled through this thing called the gospel, since Jesus has made peace between us and God, and because we, Jesus has blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God, what the Beatitude is really teaching is basically this, that, that we're called to repeat in our lives what God has done for us. In other words, we're, we are called to repeat in our lives every day what Jesus has also done for us, and that is to be peacemakers. And being a peacemaker is not necessarily an easy thing, but it's what we're called to do. As we look at our call to be peacemakers, let me clarify the difference between um, peacemaking and peacekeeping. Most people, to be honest with you, are peacekeepers. And I'm going to read you. I just, this, this list is just out of my head. And it took me about two minutes to write. What's the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper? Someone who proactively is seeking to be reconciled to other people. Someone who's proactively seeking to maybe, maybe you're a third party and you're trying to reconcile two people who are, who are at odds with each other. What's the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper, right? So the first thing that I wrote, a peacekeeper, a peacemaker rather, tells the truth. 
Well, a peacekeeper oftentimes avoids the truth. Right? Just keep your head down. As long as I keep my head down, there won't be any conflict. Not just keep moving. Right? Peacekeepers tell the peacemakers tell the truth. A peacemaker fosters reconciliation. Peacekeepers, by their very apathy, foster division. Right? In, in other words, if two parties are, are against each other, and you know them well, let's say you're their friend, and you are not seeking to have them reconciled by just keeping your mouth shut, you're, you're actually assisting them to be more divided. Peacemakers don't fear conflict. Peacekeepers avoid conflict. Peacemaker doesn't fear confrontation, at least not too much. Peacekeepers avoid confrontation. Peacemakers won't abide gossip. Peacekeepers, guess what? Peacekeepers use gossip as a tool. Because if they, can, if they can use gossip to get their way and to make sure that no, nothing comes down upon them, that's how it works. Okay, peacekeeper, peacemaker persuades, a peacekeeper manipulates. Peacekeepers, peacemakers bear the pain of others. Peacekeepers avoid the pain of others. Peacemakers are other-centered. Peacekeepers are self-centered. Peacemakers are courageous at some level. Peacekeepers tend to be cowardly. Peace makers are risk takers peacekeepers are risk avoiders peacemakers talk to people peacekeepers talk about people peacemakers take the blame peacekeepers shift the blame in other words peacemakers are poor in spirit peacekeepers mourn their sin peacekeepers are meek or peacemakers are meek. In other words, to make peace, you've got to have some level of humility. And in order to be humble, you've got to start at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning of the Beatitudes. If, you're poor, if you mourn your own sin, if, if you are meek, and remember what meekness is, it's putting the rights of others before you. If you actually pursue righteousness, then you can actually see how that would end up having you being able to make peace. Because it's easier for someone to make peace with you if you're humble than if you are haughty, right? And so to the extent, if you read that list, to the extent that we trust all these beatitudes that Jesus has done these things for us, that we have been reconciled to God, and because we have been reconciled to God, the rest of the beatitudes make sense to us, right? That we're poor in spirit, mourn, meek. To the extent we trust Jesus in these things, we can live the life that he lives through us. We can be peacemakers. Now, practically speaking, what does it look like? Martin Lloyd-Jones had four areas of that, that where he talked about the practical application of peacekeeping. And the first thing which made me laugh when I read it, and this is my, trans, this is my summary of everything he said in a couple pages, learn to keep your mouth shut. Number one application of being a peacekeeper, zip it. In other words, I think I've come to believe over the years that some of my best friends are people who don't tell me what other people are saying about me. Because if they don't tell me what other people are saying about me, then I don't stay awake at night wondering what I'm supposed to do about it. I sleep well. And it doesn't matter anyway. Right? So... When we, we, we need to learn when to keep our mouths closed, when not to say something. And, and when, because if you think about it, if we want to make peace, sometimes we say things that are true that don't help at all. 
Right? I remember one time having a discussion with somebody and confronting them about gossip. And he said, well, if it's true, it's not gossip. And I said, well, if it's true and it hurts someone, it is gossip. If it's true and it hurts someone, it's not helpful at all. So at some level, you don't, want to, you don't want people to lie for sure, but just because something is true doesn't make it right to say. And it certainly doesn't make it right to say in public. His second thing, he said, view every situation in light of the gospel. And what he means by that when he says it is how, when, when you are in the middle of some conflict or you're trying to think through conflict for other people, ask yourself, how is the world perceiving the gospel because of what I'm doing here? Right, so let, let's say you, you work with a bunch of, of people who aren't Christians, and, and you want to see them become Christians, maybe. And then you go to, to work every day, and when you go to work, they hear you constantly complaining about this or that thing that happened at your church. Right, whether you go to our church, or they, I mean, it's the same everywhere. Do you think you are actually moving the ball forward or moving it backward? Do you think you're gaining ground by, by complaining or, or losing ground? When we view every situation in light of the gospel, it changes things. You can ask my wife this. I say this, I don't know, maybe at least once a month. I'll say, I hate being a Christian. And the reason I say that oftentimes is because someone has crossed me. Someone has cut me off in traffic. Someone has done something that is unjust to me. And I'll say, I hate being a Christian because since I am, I can't do what I want to do. I can't do what my natural inclination to do. I can't, I can't strike back, if you will. I can't retaliate. Instead, I have to make peace. In, in other words, it's not always easy, but I'm called to it nonetheless. Third thing he says is we go out of our way to be peacemakers. In other words, sometimes we apologize when we don't have to. Sometimes you haven't done anything wrong, and what it will take to move everything forward is for you to just say, you know, I'm sorry. In other words, you, we, we bear blame, maybe even blame that we don't deserve. Does that sound like someone else to you? It's exactly what Jesus did for us. And we go out of our way. Instead of escalating situations, we de-escalate. You know, just yesterday afternoon, I went to the gym. I go to 24-hour fitness over here. And I was parked in the middle slot. There, there's basically a painted sidewalk. And there's no, there are no cement barriers. And as I was walking out to my truck, an enormous truck, the hood of this truck was higher than my head, pulled into the to a parking spot and just kept going in front of me over the crosswalk. And I stopped. I looked at the guy. And he looked at me like, okay, we're going to do this. And I went. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. I could have escalated it. And he could have escalated it back. His truck is twice as big as mine. And instead, he just laughed. Right? Do we overcome evil with good is basically what I'm getting at. Are we overcoming evil with good? The last thing he says is that, that we live out the prior beatitudes. If you're living out the prior beatitudes, you can't help but be a peacemaker. I mean, imagine this. I mean, I know I'm probably the only person in the room that's ever had conflict with my spouse. And imagine, is it easier to, to, to be reconciled to your spouse 
if your spouse is poor in spirit, if your spouse genuinely mourns his or her sin, if your spouse genuinely is concerned about your rights over his or her rights, you see where I'm going with that. So the more we understand the Sermon on the Mount, which means, and, and the Beatitudes, which ultimately means the more we understand the gospel, the more peacemaking will just happen. We will be peacemakers by virtue of the fact we are becoming more and more like Jesus. But wait, there's more. There's more to being a peacemaker than just being in right relationship with people in church or right relationship with your spouse. Remember, being a peacemaker, sometimes you're called to be a third-party peacemaker. And every Christian, would you agree, or at least according to this beatitude, is called to be a peacemaker. Well, one aspect of peacemaking that every Christian is supposed to be involved in is helping to see other people be reconciled to God. In, in other words, are you an ambassador for the gospel? Are you telling people, you are hostile to God, I get that, but God has done all this stuff in order to be reconciled to you? That our job as Christians is also to be ambassadors. Let me read you what Paul said in Second 1 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, verse 17, he starts out, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you implored someone to be reconciled to God? That's our calling and I don't say that to make you feel guilty. If I want to make you feel guilty, I preach about evangelism every Sunday. But the fact is, one of the natural outworkings of us becoming more and more like Jesus and becoming peacemakers is not just to, to make peace among conflict, but also to help people be reconciled to God. That's all of our mission. Now, so for some of us, that means actually maybe literally imploring people. For other people, it means you're serving in music ministry, you're serving in safety ministry, you're serving in the church that you're, you're helping to move this ball forward, helping people to be reconciled to God generally. Now, here's the thing. If you are going to do that, if you are going to, to be someone who reconciles people to God, who actually tells people the gospel, who constantly is seeking to reach people with the gospel, sometimes you will be persecuted. In other words, if you're, if you're the consequences of being a peacemaker mean that sometimes you're going to take it on the chin. Right? If you're going to be involved in conflict with people who are hostile, whether it's hostile to other people or hostile to God, sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not going to work. And sometimes you will be persecuted. Now here's the thing. Notice what he says. In verse 10 is actually the last of the, the formal Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 11, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now what's interesting 
is verse 10. He says, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's third person. Remember, he's talking to the disciples and a bunch of people are probably listening around. And he switches when he gets to verse 11 to the second person. In other words, he looks down at people. He says, you, Samuel, you, someday, right? Someday, when you're persecuted, when people revile you and do all these things, you should count yourself blessed. You should rejoice and be glad. He's telling his disciples that this is going to happen, and when it happens, be glad about it. Now, I, I, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to quote Tim Keller here because this is going to, some people aren't going to like this, and I'm going to say, eh, well, it's Keller, not me. Um, Keller basically says this. He says, if, if you're going through your life as a Christian and you are constantly persecuted, you feel like you're constantly put upon. People, people are just constantly persecuting you. He would say, you are probably just obnoxious. On the other hand, if you go through your Christian life and you are never persecuted, not once, everyone loves you all the time, he says, you are probably a coward. In other words, as we grow to be more and more like Jesus, the more we're willing to risk and put ourselves out there, either with interpersonal conflict or either with the sort of cosmic conflict between God and man. But either way, sometimes we will be persecuted. And sometimes, Jesus says, people will revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he says to that, and we'll tie it up here. He says, what, what should our response be to being reviled and persecuted and having all kinds of evil uttered against us? He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's Jesus' point there? Why does he bring up the prophets? It's because when we look at the prophets, we, we look back at the prophets and say, wow, how godly they were, or wow, how, how wise and how, how theological, what theological insights I get from Isaiah or Jeremiah. Like, in their day, most people hated them. Most people hated them for saying what they said, and yet we, we look back and say they were right. How awesome. And what Jesus is saying is when we are persecuted for his sake and on his behalf and in his name, we'll be like the prophets. People are going to look back and say they were right. You know, so one of the things that changed my life here at our church during a time of conflict is I read George Whitfield, and I read a, an article about him, and George Whitfield was, was arguably the greatest, uh, certainly the greatest preacher that the North America has ever known. He was responsible, everyone agrees, for the Great Awakenings uh, right before the Revolutionary War. Um, the, the African-American church, he was responsible. They, they would say he was responsible because he would preach dramatically to, to crowds of tens and twenty thousands and no one I mean no, no one could not hear they he could preach without amplification and people heard him and he was so dramatic African-American the slaves would say wow if that's what church is like I could do that and what's interesting about him because he was so famous and because he was so effective he was also uh, constantly attacked he was constantly attacked in the papers. He was constantly attacked by other ministers who didn't think that, you know, who wanted to criticize him. All of these things, and he never retaliated. And his friends would say, George, come on, man, retaliate. This guy's an idiot. Just say something, write something. The whole world will listen to you. And you know how he would always reply? In the end, we will see who's right. 
And in the end, they'll, they'll know I was right about this or they'll know I was right about that. And you know what? When I read that, it changed everything for me. Because if I trust Jesus, in the end, if I'm right about a particular situation, everyone's going to see it. Everyone. Especially the people who are doing the reviling. Especially the people who are doing the persecuting. They're going to see, wow, Tommy was right. Joe was right. Jesus was right, ultimately. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we... um, sit here, maybe even we think through people we we might need to make peace with, people we might need to to seek reconciliation with. But I also pray that we would be thinking about people who don't know you, who are hostile to you, whether they know it or not, that we might also bring this message of reconciliation to. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.